Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Last month, as you may remember, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky addressed parliament after parliament around the world, pleading for help in fighting the Russians. In America, he asked Congress to remember Pearl Harbor and asked it once more to be a leader. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. In Britain, he evoked Winston Churchill and the fight against Nazis. But in Germany, when he addressed the Bundestag, the tone was different. He once more evoked a moment from the country's past, the erection of the Berlin Wall. But instead of doing the right thing, he suggested Germans were now on the wrong side of the divide, between what he said was freedom and slavery. He then put it even more bluntly. Germany had prioritized the economy over the lives of Ukrainians. Now there was a new wall, one between those countries willing to sacrifice via sanctions and those, like Germany, who become too reliant on Russian energy. Zelensky implored Germany's Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, once more to tear it down. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird, and in today's show, how did Europe's largest economy become so dependent on Russian energy, and how can it now wean itself off it? First, we'll look at how Germany got here. Germans were very happy with their cheap energy imports from Russia and didn't really question the consequences of such a dependence on Russian energy. Then, we'll look at where else it could potentially find replacement gas in the short term. So uh, we have seen essentially a doubling of the energy imports compared to last year. And we'll look at what the political cost has been for its foot dragging. So Germany has been wrong on Russia, has been wrong on military and has been wrong on energy. And so that, of course, undermines Germany's credibility. And finally, how has this changed the power dynamics in Europe? Let's first begin by taking a brief step back. When Western nations imposed sanctions on Russia at the beginning of the war, 
they were touted as sweeping. The president unveiling sweeping new sanctions against Russia. Unprecedented. I am pleased that the United States and our partners are finally moving forward with unprecedented sanctions against Historic. Russia. The U.S. Treasury Department this morning announcing historic sanctions on the Russian central bank. It prohibits you. And it's worth noting that Germany did take action then. It suspended the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would have brought even more Russian gas into Europe. Uh, the German chancellor saying his country will indefinitely stop the certification of the pipeline following Russian action on Ukraine. This is very, very important because Nord Stream 2 was set to... But as the conflict has dragged on, it's become increasingly apparent that those sanctions and early moves didn't go far enough. That's because of the huge carve-outs put in place so that European nations could continue buying Russian oil and gas. As I told you last time I hosted Money Talks, Russia's currency, the ruble, has mostly recovered its losses. And, as a piece in this week's paper shows, Russia's trade surplus is likely to be around $200 to $250 billion this year. That's twice what it was last year. But recently, there have been some efforts to close that loophole, on oil at least. On May the 9th, the group of seven nations announced a plan to ban or phase out their use of Russian oil. And as of this recording, the wider group of 27 EU nations is still attempting to come to an agreement on its own oil embargo, prompted by EU President Ursula von der Leyen. And let's be clear, it will not be easy, because some member states are strongly dependent on Russian oil, but we simply have to do it. So today, but even if they agree, it won't be enough to turn off the taps completely. And that's partly because of Germany's reliance on Russian gas, both to heat its homes and power its factories. To find out how Germany got itself in this position, I'm joined by Christian Odendahl, our European economics editor, and Wendelin von Bredau, our senior Germany correspondent. Hello to both of you. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Mike. So we heard some pretty angry words from Zelensky just at the opening there. How justified do you think he is in those sort of criticisms of Germany? I think he is quite justified because Germany is very reliant on Russian energy. Um, it reduced its reliance since the start of the war. But before the war started, Germany got more than half of its gas from Russia and a big part of its coal and its oil imports. So he absolutely has a point with this criticism. I agree. You know, this reliance is both, I think, economic and how it came about also has a huge political dimension. Um, so this is not a sort of historical accident. This dependence on, on Russian energy came on purpose. And now Germany finds itself in a position where it's very difficult to wean itself off Russian energy imports. And that is, of course, hampering the response that Germany can do politically. So I think yeah, there is some justification in that, absolutely. So how is this playing out politically? Are Germans angry with politicians for not seeing the problems coming? How is this affecting the uh, government, which I suppose is still relatively new in the grand scheme of things? So there's a debate raging here uh, about this, and the debate's been raging for weeks now, or ever since the war started, really. So are Germans angry with politicians for not seeing the problem coming? Yes, they are. I don't think politicians were unaware of it. So even 10 years, 15 years ago, there were big disagreements. How is it affecting the new government? Well, it's possibly the most important issue of the day. It's really central at the moment to the debate in Germany. I would add that there was a surprisingly broad political consensus I think between, particularly in the grand coalition, so the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats that governed the eight years prior to this government, on the policies towards Russia. 
And that is what I find most striking, that there is basically no, with the exception maybe of the Greens, there's no, there's no real opposition that now can run around and say, well, we told you so. So I, I think there's no obvious blame game going on because it was such a broad political consensus that was based on various parties in government that was uh, supported by German industry. So it's an ongoing discussion in most of the political talk shows how we came to this point. Christian Wendelin, I'm going to briefly pause our conversation and I'm going to come back to it later in the show because I think it's worth dwelling on exactly how Germany came to this point. And it really does go back to that era that President Zelensky referred to when he addressed the Bundestag, the creation of the Berlin Wall. Our editor, Kim Gitterson, has more. The mood in West Berlin today is not one of anxiety, fear or panic. The people are angry. On August 13, 1961, the communist government of the German Democratic Republic began constructing the wall that would separate East and West Berlin. Groups of them gather near the borders of the eastern sector and quietly, almost scornfully, watch the East German soldiers fixing the barbed wire. They watch them cutting the city in half. One of those watching was West Berlin's mayor, Willy Brandt. He would later say that the building of the Berlin Wall, his city and his country being cleaved in two, was what molded his political philosophy. I was governing mayor of Berlin the day the terrible wall was erected. I had to reorient my political activities along the line of interests of normal human beings, some of them being forced to live on another side and the rest of us do. So I think the, at least for the, for, for the later part of my life, this experience with division and how to make a wall transparent least, uh, certainly has, uh, I think, been my most important uh, experience. Making the wall transparent became Brandt's life work. In 1969, he was elected Chancellor of West Germany. Ich schwöre, dass ich meine Kraft dem Wohle des deutschen Volkes widmen, seinen Nutzen mehren. Almost immediately, he started to change his country's approach to the superpower to the east. Willy Brandt brought the Social Democrats to power. Brandt wasted no time in easing relations with the Soviet bloc. It all started with Neue Ostpolitik or the New Eastern Policy, a key tenet of which was change through rapprochement, figuring out ways to bind the East and the West closer together rather than pushing them apart, including via economic ties, or change through trade. Brandt saw that the Soviet Union, rich with resources, and industrial West Germany could strike a mutually beneficial partnership over gas and oil. In the Soviet Union, enormous new reserves of gas and oil have been discovered in Siberia. The West Germans would provide giant steel pipes to the Soviets in order to build a pipeline. In return, the Soviets would agree to give Germany preferential pricing. With enough pipelines, they believe Siberia could become a powerhouse for much of Europe, west as well as east. In 1970, Brandt signed a deal to expand the Druzba pipeline, it had been known as the Friendship Pipeline, to provide Soviet gas to West Germany. Under the terms of the deal, West Germany will get a 20-year supply of Siberian gas. In exchange, it will provide 1,240 miles of 52-inch steel tube for the pipeline. 
Now, conversations about this pipe part sale had started in the early 1960s. But then, as now, Americans were nervous about the interdependence between West Germany and the Russians, and President John F. Kennedy tried to stop all pipe exports from West Germany to Russia. In March 1963, he discussed this with his Undersecretary of State, George W. Ball, in a phone call. Is this on the pipe or just generally? On the pipe. Uh, on Did he bring the up the pipe? Well, I brought up the pipe, I brought up the ship for oil deal, and I brought up the sale of the Viscounts, all three. Yeah. We hit him very hard. I told him that on the pipe that the, they weren't going to get anything out of the pipe. But, they were but the reality was that Germany was starved for other sources of energy. Unlike in France, nuclear energy was politically unpopular. And after OPEC instituted an oil embargo in 1973... The Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. Worldwide oil prices increased dramatically. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries imposed its boycott and within a year raised prices more than 300%. So natural gas began to seem like the natural way forward. The same year of OPEC's embargo, gas from Brandt's expanded pipeline started flowing into West Germany, solidifying its role in Germany's energy mix and Germany's reliance on Russia to supply it. Willie Brandt lived to witness the Berlin Wall come down in 1989. One has the feeling that after many difficult years, we may now be close to a point where that kind of division comes to an end. By that time, a third of West Germany's gas came from the Soviet Union. Today, it's two-thirds. And now, what began as a peace-building effort has instead come to fund a new war. After the break, we'll look at where Germany could get its gas from, if not from Russia. But before then, there are a ton of other interesting angles that are being covered by my colleagues in this week's Economist. My colleague Doug Dowson has crunched the numbers on Russia's trade surplus, digging up a heap more beyond what I've mentioned here. You can get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you already subscribe, you should make sure you're signed up to our Money Talks newsletter. Each week features some behind-the-scenes stories from our global network of business journalists. You can sign up to that at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. So we now know how Germany came to rely so heavily on Russian gas. And the important question now is how to wean itself off it. Germany, of course, could replace gas with another energy source. It does have domestic sources of coal, for instance. But the issue is that that would clash with Germany's other energy goal. It's called Energiewende, for you German vocabulary collectors out there. And its aim is to transition the country's energy mix to be cleaner and greener. So restarting older, dirty energy plants isn't really an option. And that means the focus, in the short term at least, is very narrowly on finding gas from elsewhere. Specifically, liquefied natural gas, which is usually transported by sea. So we have seen essentially a doubling of the LNG imports compared to last year. Last week, we had another record with 3.8 billion cubic meters in just one week, which is almost double of what we are getting from Russia. I spoke with Georg Zachmann, who's a senior fellow at the Bruegel Institute. 
He's been paying attention to energy policy in Europe since before it was cool. So, Georg, let's start first with what you were just talking about, the market for liquefied natural gas. We saw prices spike last year. Now there's even more demand as Germany and other European economies as well try and wean themselves off Russian gas. Do you think that will continue? Yes, so the global energy market was quite tight last year because there has been a couple of special situations with both on the supply and the demand side. So that loosened a bit this year. So there is a bit more natural gas available on this global LNG market. China's demand for LNG seemed to have receded a bit and some of the issues on the production side of LNG have come down. The US has opened another LNG exporting terminal and might open another one again. So there is a bit of a lucky coincidence that there is more available. But then, of course, Europe needs to import a lot of LNG. And alone, the existing capacities plus the lucky circumstances will not do them. So if lucky circumstances won't do, in the short term, what's going to happen? So what essentially happens is that the EU starts to buy LNG that was supposed to go to different markets. So LNG that was supposed to go to East Asia, South Korea, Japan, India, Pakistan, other places. And what happens there is that essentially the global energy market is at work. So you see that coal-fired power plants are used then more in those locations and they use their gas-fired power plants less and make thereby cargoes available for the European market. Up to now, this works very well, but we'll have to see if something on the demand or on the supply side happens throughout the year. I mean, we are really walking a tightrope walk here. I suppose this is sort of a fortunate time for this to be happening, but it's not going to be the case forever that, you know, it's spring in the Northern Hemisphere, you'll get into next winter, and these decisions seem like they'll be a lot more difficult then. I mean, we we don't know how the demand supply balance might unfold over the next months, but getting 3.8 billion cubic meters per week, as we got last week, is not a given. And yes, there might be new production facilities coming online, but not this year. When the real big new production facilities might take three, five years to supply the European market instead of getting Russian supplies. So... uh, here, we, we need to be a bit lucky. And of course, we need to pay more than every other customer in the world is willing to pay. So the German Ministry of Economics and Energy handed out 1.5 billion euros to the gas exchange to go to the market and, and buy gas. And at the same time, German gas companies are certainly asked by the government to find new gas to fill the new LNG terminals that Germany has commissioned. So Germany will move from zero LNG terminals now to maybe six or seven in three or four years. And for this also gas has to come. Right. I mean, like, it seems to me that there might be a lot of competition, not just between South Korea or China, as you mentioned, but maybe within the European Union itself. We saw examples of that in the past weeks, where, for example, both Spain and Italy spoke to Algeria and Italy in the end got the gas which is maybe the right way to bring the gas in physical terms because Italy is better connected to Central Europe and Italy uses Russian gas that can then be replaced. But on the other hand, it raised some eyebrows in Madrid. And one feels a bit that there might be a competition between member states, not only maybe about money, but also about political support that Germany then is giving to to gas exporting countries. So we must be quite careful not to divide the European Union too much over that. And I think just to end, I wondered whether you had any thoughts on what a sort of optimistic outcome for, you know, if we look at the next nine months or so, so getting us back towards the end of winter next year, you look at a sort of optimistic and a pessimistic way that you think that might go. 
What's the what's the best, the potential best outcome, and what could some of the worst outcomes be? I mean, the best outcome would be that Europeans really they understand that that they can do it without Russian gas. That essentially there might even be a, a supply cut, and that they pull all the opportunities they have together in a European way to make sure that they get through the next two winters. And those options are currently politically blocked, partially. So things like yeah, bringing back certain coal plants, building certain transmission lines between countries, increasing gas production in the Netherlands in the short term, maybe bringing back German nuclear to some degree. Things that are politically very difficult, but if all the member states contribute their part, I mean, we might get a much stronger European energy policy. We might get into a world where not every member state stands for itself, but where we try to pull together the, the great resources that Europe has in terms of renewables, in terms of existing nuclear, in a way that Europeans might manage the next winters and in the end have even better institutions to, to deal with such crises. Okay, so that sounds great, but you know, it's like giving praise first before coming in with the real feedback. What's the negative version of this? The negative vision is, of course, that the pressure on national policymakers will be huge in the next months um, if Russia cuts supplies or if the Europeans decide not to buy Russian gas anymore. The shortfall will be significant. Uh, there will have to be pain distributed between countries, between sectors, between environmental and economic targets. And that has a lot of politically corrosive elements to it. So finding a way that tilts more towards the positive side is going to require quite a bit of political capital to be invested, quite a bit of political leadership. So it's not physically impossible, but it's politically quite challenging. Thank you very much for joining us, Georg. Thanks a lot, Mike. It was a great pleasure. Speaking of that political capital, that political leadership, I wanted to pick up again where we started with Christian and Wendelin about the politics of all of this. So hello again. Hello. Hi, Mike. So Christian, we paused our conversation looking at the political fallout of this consensus decision by Germany's political class to continue to keep close energy ties with Russia. But as we just heard, it's not like Germany hasn't been warned many times over by both its American allies about those close ties and, and also by its central European neighbours, which have issued stark warnings. So... Why do you think they were ignored so many times? So I think this is something that the German debate currently grapples with, is sort of how could we ignore, basically, the warnings coming from either side? And, you know, Donald Trump famously said, you're becoming way too dependent on Russian gas. And in part, it was the messenger that could be ignored. But on the Central and Eastern European side, I don't know that there is any good justification for ignoring them. Maybe Wendelin has a deeper insight into this. Christian, you're absolutely right. Uh, Trump was quite blunt in his warnings, but Obama before him was more polite in his warnings, but equally vocal. I don't think they were entirely ignored. I mean, there have always been critical voices, but I agree that largely there was a consensus and Germans were very happy with their cheap energy imports from Russia and didn't really question the consequences of such a dependence on Russian energy. Now it seems very naive, of course, with hindsight, but, you know, it's, it's always easier to say these things with hindsight. So moving on from sort of hindsight to foresight, the winter coming looks like it will be particularly difficult for large parts of Europe and, and Germany, certainly no different on that front. Is there anything being done in terms of preparing for reduced consumption? 
particularly for households, is there anything specific of interest going on in Germany on that front? So there's no active policy in that regard, no rationing, no additional taxes or something like that. I think German policymakers are fully aware that this is a major shock for household budgets and they don't want to add to that politically. To the contrary, I mean, on petrol, Germany has introduced a tax cut so that it's not as expensive anymore. They haven't done the same with gas yet, but there's surprisingly little done on this. There's more done on, the, on, on trying to get additional supplies. They're also doing quite a bit on gas, but of course, it's not as quick as one would like it to be. So they're building two LNG terminals, but that'll take a while. And they're leasing for floating LNG terminals. And they're setting aside, I think, 2.5 billion euros to do that. But the big problem, as Christian mentioned, is gas. And the problem about trying to replace Russian gas is that, that it can be done, but it cannot be done quickly. And moving on to the sort of much longer term, so well ahead of this winter, has it changed the conversation in Germany about nuclear power, which has obviously been a huge point of interest, both domestically and internationally, about German energy policy? Has it changed the discussion around that? I, I wish it had, but it hasn't really affected the discussion much. I think that the consensus about the end of nuclear power in Germany was incredibly broad. There were basically two decisions made in the German energy policy. That was to extend renewables and to shut down nuclear. There are three remaining nuclear power stations that are scheduled to be shut down by the end of this year. And if there is a bit of a debate, then it is around whether those nuclear power plants could run for a bit longer. But I don't think we will make much progress on that because, as I said, the, the consensus against nuclear is just too strong. In Germany, I think, you know, people internationally may underestimate how much indoctrination there was. I mean, we as children in the 80s and 90s, we had to read children's books about nuclear incidents and nuclear war that were, you know, shocking for a child. And so, you know, it's not a rational discussion that we have about nuclear power. The only other country I know that has a sort of similar aversion quite like that to nuclear is Austria, where I've just been. In Austria, there's a sort of slightly absurd scenario. They built a nuclear power plant in Zwentendorf, a huge thing. And then at the time, Bruno Kreisky, the chancellor, sensed that the mood was turning in the population and he held a referendum on the use of this particular nuclear plant, of course, hoping that, you know, once this incredibly expensive thing has been built, that people vote in favor, but they didn't. So it, it didn't even start operating. And you can visit a nuclear power plant in Austria, you know, like a museum. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's surreal in many ways. What I find fascinating about the, the combination of the, the political side of things and the nuclear energy policy side of things that's come up in both of those questions is that this is a problem with a very long-term consensus where there aren't that many dissenting voices just sort of all coming to a head and, and collapsing at once, the force behind it. And I think from the UK and US, you might well be the sort of person who wishes over the long term that British and American politics was a bit more consensual and a bit more German. But in this instance, it's that sort of consensus that's proved to be the problem. Yes and no. I mean, it does reflect popular opinion. You know, if you, if you held a referendum on nuclear power, you'd get a resounding no to the use of nuclear power. And on Russia, the consensus was never quite as unanimous as it is on the nuclear issue. So, yeah, I, I don't think consensus is per se a problem. I think it's really the way the debate was held in Germany. If we go back to Germany's Russia policy, 
Germany was so focused on its commercial interests that they were just so happy to use cheap Russian energy. So they became very blinkered and just thought, well, you know, business first, a bit like Zelensky said in his speech to the Bundestag, the lower uh, house of parliament. So Fenderlin mentioned uh, commercial interests there and being led by commercial interests. If we're looking out over, again, the next few years, we're looking at an environment where it seems basically guaranteed that energy prices in Germany and a lot of other places are going to be considerably higher than they have been in the past. Even an optimistic scenario, whether shortages recede, I think that still seems fairly likely to be the case. What does it mean in the longer term for German industry if energy is permanently more expensive? So I think in part Germany's industry was successful because it could count on cheap energy and also extending its supply chains to Central and Eastern Europe and build a slightly cheaper network of supply chains that were feeding the German industry. So basically two sort of cost-cutting exercises, if you want. And some of those industrial business models do rely on cheap gas. And I think there's relative certainty that these business models that rely on cheap gas are not going to survive this crisis. And it's not about an embargo, this is about permanently higher gas prices. And there are places where some basic inputs into industrial production can be produced cheaper because there's cheap energy, such as the US, right? But I think that you know, some of the warnings that we've heard coming from German industry about the shock waves that a gas embargo, for example, would send through German industry, um, I think that there's some truth in that in the short term. But over the medium and long term, I think German industry will adjust. So I, I don't think there is necessarily a big permanent damage, but the transition to that new normal with high energy prices, I think that is a bit painful. And the faster you have to do that, the more painful it is. Maybe just to add something on, it's exactly as Christian said, it's the transition that German industry is requiring, is asking for. I mean, there's, a, for instance, a plant in Ludwigshafen, I think it's the biggest uh, chemical plant in, in Europe, and they say if they get only half the gas they need, they have to shut down the entire plant. And it's something like 10,000 jobs and, and an additional maybe 40,000 in terms of auxiliary jobs and supplemental jobs in the region. So a gas embargo now would have a huge impact on German industry. And I think there's enormous resistance against it. But not only in Germany, Italy and Austria, two other countries that are very much reliant on Russian gas. Austria, for instance, depends for 80% of its natural gas imports on Russian gas. Italy, it's, it's also very high. So Germany is not the only country that finds itself quite so dependent on Russian gas. And there's one additional aspect of this, uh, what you asked earlier about reducing consumption. Germany put together a package to help energy intensive industries. And, and part of that is actually a subsidy for gas consumption. So basically the opposite of what you would want to do if you wanted to prepare for a gas shortage in the winter. But it is meant to help this energy uh, transition towards higher gas prices for industry. And this shows you how, how deep the political consensus runs on trying to support our energy intensive industry to make that transition. I will say there are disagreements between economists on exactly how bad such a hit would be, you know, sort of a complete embargo on Russian energy. And they range from a sort of 3% hit of GDP to something like 6%. And just to give you an idea, in 2020, the COVID-19 epidemic resulted in a reduction of German GDP by 4.5%. So, you know, the truth is we don't no, exactly. It's very hard to model or to quantify. And economists will tell you that we are in uncharted waters here. 
And I think just looking at it slightly more broadly from a, a political perspective, how does this change things, if at all, within the EU? France has fewer direct energy issues, in part due to the very large amount of nuclear power that's generated there. From the European political perspective, what changes due to all of this energy politics going on in Germany? Well, I suppose, you know, Europe has historically always been driven by the Franco-German tandem. And of course, in this particular time, Germany is far more vulnerable than France is because France is able to count on nuclear energy. So in that sense, Germany is in a weak position. Added to that, in Emmanuel Macron, you have a leader who is very willing to be an EU leader and to be very prominent compared with Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, who is quite reticent by nature and doesn't really seek the EU limelight, so to speak, or the limelight as a powerful EU leader. So I guess you could say the balance of power has changed in France's favour. Yeah, I would agree. I would even put it a bit stronger. So Germany has been wrong on Russia, has been wrong on military and has been wrong on energy. And so that, of course, undermines Germany's credibility when it comes to policies in Europe, right? Germany's preparing, of course, to correct those mistakes. But if you add on top sort of higher energy prices that are bound to hit Germany's economy harder than France's, for example, then this, I think, is a weakening of Germany in the context of, of European discussions on these dossiers, because on all three points, and Germany has been wrong. So as you were talking, it got me thinking again about Ostpolitik and how those sort of decisions made in the 70s really reshaped the European and the German attitude and approach towards Russia, then the Soviet Union for, for decades to come. And it changed so much of European energy policy and European security policy. And it feels like we might be going through that sort of moment again, you know, this sort of pinch point, this pivotal moment where everything could change for, for years or decades to come, both for European politics and for the economy. Fendelin Christian, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you very much for having us. Our thanks too to Georg Zachmann. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Kevin Kaners. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. The show's editor is Kim Gittelson, with additional help this week from Harriet Noble. I'm Mike Bird, and in Singapore... This is The Economist.